0: you have your Bibles, open up to Acts chapter 20, predictably, perhaps, if you know Acts 20 at all. The father of English literature, yeah, we'll start there. Geoffrey Chaucer, may be familiar with Canterbury Tales, he wrote in the 1300s that all good things must come to an end. Simply, this now universal truth means that nothing, not even good things, last forever. And in some ways, it's an encouragement to enjoy the moment as seasons of life come and go. Pretending to go on as if nothing is changed is like a farmer trying to farm out of season. It just doesn't work. And so it's tempting, I think, when we don't like the season that we find ourselves in, or we don't like the one that we predict is coming, And we try to hold on to a past one or long for some future better season other than the one where we're at. But, and I didn't even know Mike did this, as Ecclesiastes says, there is a time for every season. We must not fight to seize the season that we want. But we actually should fight to receive the season that comes. So, we must learn to worship God through every single season so that we don't idolize the seasons themselves. Truth be told, I never planned to be a pastor. It was not the goal, but God. But God. Fifteen years later, I have weathered many very different seasons. As Kaylin told, in May 2006, a small church began in our living room in the house we now live in, our first official gathering. I think we had about a dozen people, and we graduated from our living room to our garage, which was very weird, and eventually to an elementary school in Marysville. And As we grew, I eventually had to make the necessary choice to leave teaching high school, which to this day remains the hardest decision I ever had to make. But within five years after having planted our church, we launched another church, which again, Kalen referenced Communion Church in Mount Vernon, and then another in 2013, which would become Restoration Road Church. And many of you were around for those years. Some of you have been around for all of them. And honestly, this past year, as I watched various friends and members make decisions to leave churches, not just ours. I found myself deeply grateful for those who have stayed through very difficult and unexpected seasons. And now we're beginning a new season of ministry, all of us with Jesus. My season of serving on the front lines as a planter and a preacher and a pastor was and has been exhilarating and exhausting all at the same time. And despite the real difficulties and sacrifices, I still love Jesus. I still love his church. And I still love ministry. The question isn't whether I could continue in this role, but whether I should. Having enjoyed moments of great joy and endured moments of great loss, my departure comes with feelings of great sadness but also a very strong God-given peace that I've finished my leg of the race and it's time to pass the baton. So please know that I'm not stepping down with some great sense of relief to be done. I've been asked that question. Kalen's been asked that question. Aren't you so relieved? No. I'm not stepping down with a great sense of relief, but a deep sense of gratitude for having just been a part of it. Without question, it is a good thing for me that is coming to an end, but I am very confident it is also the beginning of something greater for us all. So over the years, I have thought occasionally about my swan sermon, imagining what might be my final words as lead pastor of the church that I love most. What are the few things that I want people to remember after they have forgotten everything I've said? I attempted to write this sermon several times, and every time it amounted to a review of Samisms, just a bunch of repeated phrases that over the years I've said, and it unfortunately ended up sounding like an eclectic group of Twitter posts, and so I trashed that. So rather than make the tragic mistake of focusing on my words, I'll endeavor to do what I have done since the very beginning, is just preach the word. And so Acts 20, verses 17 to 38, is where we find recorded the apostles departing words to the elders of a church that he loved most. And in these words, he reviews his years at Ephesus. He explains the reasons for his reluctant departure. And he warns them about the future. And I think his words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, feel like the right ones for this moment. If you take... A look at verse 17 of chapter 20. Here's the story. It says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus, he being Paul, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll just pause there. Paul's life and his ministry had actually several different stages. His ministry really didn't begin until his early 30s when he met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. And most scholars believe he didn't really embark on his first of his three missionary journeys for likely another 14-ish years, and likely in his middle 40s. Paul preached and pastored and planted churches for approximately another 14 to 15-ish years, until his martyrdom sometime in or around AD 64. As a side, if you did a study of the number 14, in real life and in the scriptures, it's pretty fascinating. But his ministry in Ephesus was near the end of his kind of practical ministry. It kind of is like his capstone, his great opus, his grand finale. He spent several years there. Acts 19 tells this that after several years there, he had been reasoning daily in the Hall of Tyrannus, which sounds like something out of Star Wars, but it was a meeting hall there, and he reasons from the scriptures. And it says in that chapter of Acts 19, right before where we're reading this morning, that all of the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. There's a pretty bold statement. He did great work at Ephesus for many years. His extended time ministering to Ephesus came, though, with great difficulty and hardship As the word of the Lord increased, he experienced tremendous fruitfulness. For everyone and all the residents of of Asia could be said to have heard the word of the Lord. Obviously, it was great fruit. But even so, he describes his service there as full of tears and trials. Now, whether those were tears of joy or sorrow, it was probably a mix of both. But it's clear that his time and service was not without pain. Paul was attacked by both Jews and Gentiles, and I believe, though, some of the hardest trials he actually faced were the times when his close friends abandoned him or even betrayed him over the years. He named several throughout his letters, men like Demas or Alexander the coppersmith, mentioned in Acts 20 and in 2 Timothy. I think those were the hardest See, ministry can be a really pretty lonely place. At various times, honestly, I've wanted to quit. As I watched people come and go, often in a great blaze of glory. Many left for reasons directly related to me. Which, if you're not in this kind of position, it's pretty difficult to not take things personally. Some people left because of my preaching, some left because of my personality, or just my failures in their view as a pastor. Perhaps it's no surprise to me that, or is no surprise to me, that in one of his last letters, 2 Corinthians, Paul devotes a significant time responding to his critics and defending his ministry. just kind of goes with the territory. But our text here, Paul tells Ephesians, at least the Ephesian elders, how we managed to endure through all of this. Through all these tears and trials and difficult things and what he says quite plainly is this he just kept teaching and testifying to the gospel the gospel of repentance toward god and faith in jesus christ in other words he just kept naming sin in men and claiming salvation in christ he just kept preaching just kept preaching and though other teachers probably decided to compromise, probably decided to change, or otherwise give in to the fear of displeasing men or losing admiration, Paul did not shrink from speaking. Ooh. There, maybe I fixed it now. Paul never shrunk from speaking the truth of God's word, whether what he said was loved Or whether what he said was hated, whether it was in public or whether it was private, he just kept preaching and teaching the gospel. Paul doesn't claim to have pastored perfectly, he only claims to have preached the word faithfully. And I claim the same. In all humility, I have made plenty of mistakes. Plenty of mistakes over the years, and honestly, I've never really done the best I could have. None of us ever do. That's what it means to be a sinner. We fall short. My hope is that you have not only heard me preach the gospel, but actually live as if I believe it. To confess my own sins, to admit and acknowledge my own weaknesses, because there are plenty. I am far from perfect. I'm just endeavoring to be faithful. Newsflash. Pastors are sinful servants, and the best of them lead with a limp. Too often people, I think, ascribe way too much credit and way too much blame to a pastor and their ministry. So Paul helps to keep things in perspective when he first writes to the Corinthians. And I would encourage you to remember this about yourself as a shepherd, whether you're in vocational ministry or just a parent or a friend, or if you're an elder and a pastor in this church and a leader. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, what then is Apollos? What's Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is really anything, but only God who gives the growth. I'm just a mailman, and I hope I've been a faithful one. Now as you look in verse 22, Paul's departing words continue, and he offers some explanation about his rather unexpected departure. And I pray they'll help you understand mine a little bit. Verse 22, he says, And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom of God will see my face again. Paul says that he's going to Jerusalem constrained or literally bound to and by the Holy Spirit. He doesn't speak of some external command. He, He speaks of a kind of inner compelling... And even though in every, or nearly every, Disney princess movie, we are told to follow our heart, that phrase serves to arouse all kinds of contempt from many a Christian parent. Oh, that's so bad. The usual challenge to this idea is found famously in Jeremiah seventeen nine, which reads, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Don't follow your heart, it's sick. According to this verse, the sinful heart isn't trustworthy. It can lead one away from the Lord, and it certainly can. People will often say, don't follow your heart, follow God's heart. And I understand and would agree with their sentiment. By this I assume they mean they you should do what the Bible says, not just what you feel. Sin has, yes, ruined the heart of man. Man's control center is broken. Well, did you know the Bible has other things to say about the heart too? King David wrote in Psalm 37, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Wait a second, how do those go together? Apparently, not every desire of the heart is necessarily deceptive. I resonate with this compelling that Paul describes, this compelling of the spirit he refers to. His feeling led by the spirit into a specific direction without certainty of outcome feels very familiar to me. Over the years, I have watched people use this idea of leading, the Lord's leading, to baptize some pretty stupid decisions, but they sound spiritual in doing so. As a result, this has always made me a little Jeremiah-ish and skeptical about such claims and desires. How does Paul know he's not being tricked by his deceptive heart? How did I know I'm not? It's an honest question. One I've asked. One I've put before the elders. Maybe I'm nuts. Maybe I'm wrong. Without doubt, man can be deceived and led astray by their sinful hearts. But we must not forget that through the prophet Ezekiel, God describes redemption in a certain way transformation in a certain way, salvation in a certain way. He describes it as the replacement of a heart of stone with a heart of flesh that beats after and with the Spirit of God. Something changes. Over the years, I've become convinced that God's Spirit does speak to His people through the unique desires of our redeemed hearts. These feelings and desires are not sovereign. Which is why David says we are to first delight ourselves in God. Insofar as we are delighting ourselves in God, insofar as we're devoted to God's word, insofar as we're communing with God's spirit, our desires, I believe, can and will be directed by God's heart. And I think sometimes the legitimacy of our desires are often revealed in our expectations. Paul expects to suffer. It's very rare for someone to say, you know, I feel the Lord leading me into a place of suffering. That's not what I've typically encountered. But Paul here is willingly following the Spirit into something that makes his life uncomfortable that makes his life harder. And that's because he is governed by something beyond just his personal preferences. He wrote in verse 24 that he didn't account his life of any value nor as precious to himself, if only he may finish his course in the ministry that he received from the Lord Jesus. Now, I've already shared in our membership meeting, which I believe it's a public little speech if you ever want to listen to it, and gave a lot more insight into what I have been feeling over the last years or two. But I shared at that meeting how many, I think, wrongly understand the idea of calling relative to pastors and perhaps all people. I've come to learn that a calling is not merely what we do in life, but mostly how we do all of life. Technically, I think the calling for every Christian is actually the same to reveal God's glory. I think Dan Allender has written on it well. He wrote it a long time ago. He says, What we do for a living or in a ministry or in family life or friendship is merely the context of our calling. I am called by God not for a mere season or reason, but for eternity to reveal his glory. What is my calling? It is to make known something about. God, that is bound in my unique face, name, and story. It is to reveal God through my character. So, though vocations and locations change, ministry never ends. I do hope my next season will be better than the last, but I don't necessarily expect it to be easier. A verse that has helped guide my journey is found in Isaiah 30, 20 to 21. By the time you next see me, I imagine it will be my next tattoo verse. This is a sermon or a verse that I was given when I met with my counselor, trying to explore what is going on, what am I feeling? And she gave me this verse, which just happens to be somewhat quoted in The Mandalorian and Star Wars, so it just made it extra special. But here's what it says. And you can read the context, but you get the spirit of it. It says, and though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it whether you turn to the right or you turn to the left. In other words, I trust that wherever I teach, the teacher goes with me. And whether it's in the church or in a classroom, my job is the same, to testify to the gospel of grace and to reveal the glory of God. As we look at verse 25, the reason for his departure is followed by a final warning to the church, and I give this to the elders of our church as well. It says, beginning in verse 26 actually, Therefore I testify you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which God, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves there will rise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Every major transition in a church makes it vulnerable to attack. And our church is no different. Paul tells the elders to first pay careful attention to themselves. This is a good word for us all. When difficulties arise in our life or in the life of the church, we are quick to look outward before we look inward. We're slow to consider how we may have contributed to the problem or how we might contribute to the solution. Paul charges us to watch ourselves before we watch others. To watch ourselves before we watch others. As shepherds of the flock, he makes a point to remind the elders that they have been appointed by the Spirit to care and guard something that was purchased with the blood of Jesus. They don't own it. This pastor, or sorry, this church doesn't belong to any pastor or any person. The church doesn't exist. Primarily to care for you, actually, you exist to care for the church, for the people of God. See, there are three kinds of people in the church, and this is generalizing, but contextually makes sense. There's sheep, and there's goats, and there's wolves. Sheeps are, sheep are believers, not perfect believers, just Believers. Goats, false believers, and wolves are false teaching unbelievers. But they're all in the church. And when he leaves, Paul expects that false teaching wolves are going to rise from the church and they're going to speak twisted things. And I assure you, that will likely happen here as well. See, wolves don't offer new lies, they distort old truth. Wolves are divisive people who believe that they're the only ones brave enough to hold what amount to largely heretical views. Wolves are usually prideful people who believe that they have greater discernment than others. They're usually spiritual people who end up distracting the church from its primary mission. They're often covetous people who think that they should be in leadership or they spend most of their energy criticizing those who are. But wolves, ironically, don't look very threatening. They're likable. They're intriguing. They're often relational people, just like the serpent in the garden, or every wolf in every ever fairy tale you've ever heard. And so be careful. Every transition presents opportunity for internal attack. Not every idea is a heresy. Not every question is an attack. And not every critic is a wolf. Some are just really immature or wounded sheep. Over the years, I have actually come to realize that the greater threat to the church has more to do with how people hold their theology. There are certainly unorthodox, threatening theologies and beliefs that come into the church. But the greater threat is how people actually hold the theology they believe. In conclusion, Paul ends commending the church saying this in verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. In the same Spirit Restoration Road, as I embark on a new journey, I don't give you to the elders. I don't give you to the next lead pastor. I commend you to God and to His Word. Elders and pastors will always fall short of your expectations. In truth, every pastor is interim. The grass withers, flowers fade, pastors transition, members leave, churches change, but God and his word stand forever. Paul says a couple of interesting things here at the end. He continues saying, "I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities" And to those who are with me me in all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. It's like a final defense of his ministry. And he implies that, unlike other false teachers, he was never in it for personal gain. And so as to be blameless, there were times when Paul often worked a day job in the marketplace, providing for his own needs as a tent maker and not being paid as a pastor. And he wanted to relieve any burden on the church, but more than anything, he wanted to give the gospel free of charge. So Restoration Road Church, learn from my transition. And by that I mean, please hear me, I think you should pay your pastors. But I'm not convinced we need more professional Christians in the church as much as we need ambassadors in the world. We don't need more crappy pastors building their platforms, inflating their egos, or patting their nest eggs. We need more ministers in the trenches helping the least of these. And that is where I desire to go. And he ends his speech the same way that I wish to end my final sermon. As your lead pastor, Pastor, he ends with Jesus' words. And he simply says this, Remember the words of the Lord Jesus. How he himself said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And you know, these simple words, they're actually not recorded anywhere in the New Testament except here. That means they were either spoken to Paul by Jesus directly, or they were known as, you know, so frequent as to be remembered and passed on the last 15 years have been costly and in view of all the loss of many things in my life many of the struggles and the sacrifices some are left to wonder if i ever regretted entering ministry in the first place and i've had people ask me that not for a minute not for a minute. It has never been easy. But it will be forever one. One of my greatest life joys to have been your pastor. And what Jesus said is true, though hard to believe. that so we gave up a lot of our lifestyle over the last 15 years. The sacrifice has produced more joy than you could imagine. And what Jesus said is true. Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for the sake of the gospel will save it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the privilege it has been to be your servant in this place for this season. And I recognize, Lord, that my season of ministry is changing, but my ministry is not done. I pray, Lord, that everyone will see themselves as your servant and your ambassador and they will come to believe with all of their heart that it is better to give than to receive, that there is joy in service to you, that there is joy in sacrifice for others. Our flesh wants to deny that, Lord. Would you help us to believe it more? Would you bless Restoration Road Church? Would you make it greater than it? Ever could have been for your name and fame under my leadership, would you, Lord, use this small church to bring glory in this world to yourself? It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.